MSW Media. Hey, this is Sean James. I love soul music, strong drinks, and talking with Dan Dunn on what we're drinking. A glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. What is he laughing at? What is he laughing at? I'm quarantined. You're quarantined. We're all quarantined. Something funny about that. You know, I'm thinking maybe I should have some new theme music for the duration of this fucking nightmare we're all living through right now. Maybe some new theme music is in order. And fortunately, I got plenty of time on my hands, so I managed to put together a little mashup of tunes that I think are more appropriate to the general mood. We're going to get to the show in a minute. I gotta, I'm got i going to tell you another story. That's what we're doing now during the, during, uh, the, the self-quarantine period. I'm just going to tell stories because we can't have guests, really, because I could do them on the phone. I could do that, but I don't really want to do that. I like telling stories. I told a story on the last episode. I'm going to tell you a story on this episode, a story about my, my very first heartbreak when I was a young lad which I think you'll find moving, funny, sad. You'll laugh, you'll cry. It's one of those kind of stories. Um, but again, getting back to this, I, you know, I got, I had some time. I, I did this I did a little mashup of tunes. I think this this captures the mood. This would be the sort of the soundtrack of social distancing, if you will. Uh, I'll just play it for you. Give a listen. Give me a minute here. Listen to this, and then uh, we'll be right back at you. Are you lonesome? Do you miss me probably noticing there's a theme in case you're not picking it up i'm letting you know there is a theme to this Stay in one place anymore. I 
to keep the pain from coming out of my But sometimes 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 I Did you pick up on the theme of that musical mashup there? Let me know what you think. At the Imbiber, T-H-E-I-M-B-I-B-E-R on Instagram and Twitter. Love to hear your thoughts on that. Do we keep Kali King's theme song or do we go with this for a little while? I know that's a little bit longer, but, you know, we got more time on our hands. Uh, as I mentioned, got a story. I'm going to get to that in just a second. Uh, I know we're all holed up at home. Not a lot of fun things to do, but we can drink. In fact, I've been I've seen a lot of stories about how liquor sales are really going through the roof. So I got a couple of uh, some booze to tell you about. I, I kind of got your whole day covered for you. So uh, now that we don't have to worry about going to work or you know being responsible, you can just drink all day if you want. I mean, responsibly, of course. We drink responsibly, but being responsible for jobs and driving and things, you don't want to do any of that. So uh, my early morning tipple these days has been a uh, something I've told you about before. Session Mocha. Session is a gold medal winning tequila from the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, of which yours truly is a judge. Uh, this is a coffee flavored tequila. Smooth. It's well balanced. There's no cloying sweetness to it, and it's everything's natural, no artificiality. It's got like a really rich dark chocolate flavor, some smoky roasted agave notes. That's how I've been kicking off my day. It's about $45 a bottle for that Session Mocha. At lunchtime, I like to make myself a Moscow Mule, and I started using, you can use whatever vodka you want, uh, but I just started using this brand new mixer from Q. We all know Q mixers. They just came out with a hibiscus ginger beer, uh, and it's got hibiscus and rose hips. It's, it's spicy and bright and flowery and a nice little bright pink hue to it. So I've been making my Mos- my lunchtime Moscow Mule with that. It's about an ounce and a half of vodka, a half ounce with uh, the, the or five ounces, excuse me, of the, the Q Hibiscus ginger beer. Uh, you squeeze two lime wedges in there. You garnish with some candied ginger. You know how to do it. You build it in a Moscow Mule mug with ice. If you want, a little pro tip here, add a couple of dashes of Angostura bitters. Um, you can get this uh, Q Mixers Hibiscus ginger, ginger at Target, if you can get anything at Target. I don't know. I haven't been out to Target, but I'm assuming it's a hellscape out of a Mad Max movie. But if you're there and you can find it, the cans, you get four pack for about uh, $3.99. Finally, at dinner, um, I might do a gin and tonic or I might even do a Negroni. And if I'm going to do it, a gin-based drink, I'm going to use uh, Ford's Officer's Reserve London Dry Gin. It's $35 a bottle. This was a limited edition gin. I'm assuming it's still out there somewhere. Uh, I know the company Ford's Gin has, since that gin came out, it, they, they got bought by Brown Foreman, but I'm assuming they're still doing it. If you can drag it down, get it. 
It's uh, it was uh, they finished it in Amontillado uh, uh, sherry barrels. There's like a wine-driven character to it. Some dried fruits, some tannins. There's like a honey sweetness too that I really love. Uh, it's a it's a delicious, delicious. I'm having a hard time speaking. It's a delicious gin, and uh, it's great for full-bodied cocktails. So again. Everything's different now, and uh, we're going to go story again this time out. Uh, we'll probably be doing this for a while until um, things get back to... I don't think they're ever getting back to normal, but when they get back to... Uh, or at least we can leave the house. I can go see guests and all that stuff. So, But uh, we'll go. We'll start with it. This is a story I want to tell you uh, about, um, about my childhood, my first love. Because, you know... Everybody remembers their first love, right? So this is mine. You know, by this point, you if you are listening to the show or if you've read any of my books or any of that, you probably gathered that I have an issue or two, three max. Uh, I myself have suspected as much. You know, you don't have to be a Freudian scholar to guess that when it comes to people who have played a pivotal role in how I relate to the fair sex, no one looms larger for me than my mother. My mother suffers from some mental illness, bipolar. Uh, some people call it crazy. Some people call it stone barking crazy. Weirdly enough, when I tell people this, a common response I get is that growing up with a crazy mom sounds suspiciously like fun. Like, let's paint the house orange and pretend we're Richard Simmons fun. But it's not. It's much more like, let's go steal that cop's gun fun. Uh, you know, so... I figured it couldn't hurt to uh, get an expert's opinion on the matter. And so uh, I went out and I solicited the services of a lovely and competent and well-meaning professional who we'll just call the shrink. I won't bore you with all the gory details except to say that toward the end of my first session with the shrink, uh, with the shrink this exchange took place. So I said, why am I the way I am with women? And Shrink said, well, why do you think you're the way you are with women? I don't know. My drinking, my mother. He said, what aspects of your drinking and your relationship with your mother do you think hinder your ability to relate to women in a healthy way? Well, the vomiting certainly doesn't help, I said. Do you vomit often? And I said, I was joking. Why would you joke about vomiting? Well, my mother has a phobia about vomiting. Are you joking again? No, she really doesn't like vomiting at all. The shrink said, do you resent your mother? I resent the way she acts, I replied. He said, it's important that you understand that her mood swings and manic episodes are a result of her illness. Because of the illness, the two of you have a codependent relationship. You're getting into Freud territory now, I said to him, trying to look smart, you know. So you're familiar with Freud's theories on mother-son relationships? Mostly from watching movies, I told him. What about your father, he asked. What about him? You mentioned Freudian theory. Well, Freud believed that sons are in competition with their fathers for their mother's affection. To which I said, my dad wasn't around when I was growing up, so... So how did that make you feel? I said, like I won the competition for my mother's affection. 
kind of like being valedictorian at summer school. And round and round we went. Questions answered with more questions. We played a game of pathological ping pong for an hour and then agreed to meet again to pick up where we left off, discussing my earliest experiences with women. I don't care what Freud says. My mom isn't the only one to blame for the underdevelopment of what passes for my relationship skills. Besides her, few loom as large as Annette Mancini. She was eight when I was seven, and honestly, I, her being an older woman didn't bother me one bit. Annette was the first person I wanted to marry, the most beautiful and intelligent girl in the entire world. And if she was destined to get wrinkled and gray and graduate fifth grade before I did, well, so be it. I yearned for her in ways my prepubescent mind didn't much understand. Still, I wasn't squeamish about openly expressing my desire. Only to her, mind you. It seemed I'd hit on this whole love business unusually early, and the other unsophisticated little punks in my grade would have called me any number of names had I dared breathe a word of it to them. In truth, his mere words could not properly convey the depths of my affection for Annette. So I showed her how I felt with a simple, timeless gesture. I pulled her hair. Every chance I got. Eventually, I moved on from hair pulling and even got up the courage to tell Annette Mancini I thought she was nice. Now, when you're a seven-year-old boy, calling a girl nice is tantamount to serenading her with a spoken word version of Barry Manilow's Mandy at the company Christmas party. Basically, I was the biggest puss in second grade. But I didn't care. Because the fates would have it, unlike most other eight-year-old girls who tended to regard my kind as little more than living, breathing cootie carriers, Annette didn't find my frequent displays of devotion off-putting. On the contrary, she ate it up. She delighted in knowing how radiant and incredible I thought she was. We were the perfect couple. Ah, young love. It's just like old love, only without the Botox and Viagra. Today, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, my relationship with Annette provides numerous clues as to how I would later proceed on the romance front. For instance, the two of us played house all the time, though we never actually committed to living together. I now understand that had we lived together, we would have come to hate each other. The sacrament that was the game of house involved feigning domestic bliss for several hours after school in Annette's basement. It was a loosely interpreted celebration of our parents and their mundane rituals shopping, cleaning, and cooking delicious treats in Annette's Easy Bake oven. Of course, as would be the case in all my relationships from that point forward, my primary motivation for playing along, the only one really, was to make Annette love me. When I finally got around to playing house again with a woman more than 30 years later, we did so sans Easy Bake oven. I'm sorry to say I still miss the little cupcakes. I really have no other way to explain what I put myself through almost every day after school for the entirety of second grade, when I should have been out playing baseball, shooting BBs at pigeons, or knocking off convenience stores like every other red-blooded American male my age. Because with the exception of those tiny, delicious, easy-bake oven cakes, I didn't find house all that enjoyable. But I got chills whenever Annette called me dear, or stood close enough for me to breathe in the dizzying scent of her love's baby soft. And man, she doused herself in that stuff. The memory of it still makes me woozy. And then one day, at the conclusion of an otherwise routine session of Ursot's family life, Annette kissed me. Just leaned right in without warning and pressed those long, longed-for lips to mine, letting them linger there until my central nervous system blitzed my seven-year-old glands with alien signals. 
I still claim it was that hormonal overload that caused me to pee my Buster Browns on the spot. Or maybe I just had too much yoo-hoo that afternoon. It didn't matter. And Ned had kissed me. All the urine in the universe couldn't have doused the inferno that raged inside me. What happened immediately after that kiss, though, proved to be far more effective at extinguishing my inner fire. I can't play house with you anymore, Annette said matter-of-factly, her words hitting me like the blast of cruel, icy wind. No more house. The thought of it was devastating. I involuntarily emptied the remaining contents of my bladder. Confusion quickly set in, followed by anguish, embarrassment, and finally, some uncomfortable chafing around the groin area. Eh, Soiled pants will do that to a fella. No more house. Those words were like daggers plunging straight into my young heart. And not just any daggers. Daggers dipped in a poisonous mixture of lethal toxins that my second-grade science teacher had yet to tell us about. The kind of stuff my mom swore would kill me if I even put in my mouth, but carelessly left around the house within my seven-year-old reach anyway. No more house. Imagine discovering not only that there was no Santa Claus or Easter Bunny, but that your Uncle Wayne's hairy puppet Mr. Willie, who showed up on holidays, wasn't a puppet at all. This is a disturbing truth Uncle Wayne touched upon briefly many years later in a 12-step apology letter that cynical types in the family linked to an upcoming parole hearing. But that's another story. No more house. Annette had just rocked my seven-year-old world with the kiss to end all kisses, only to leave me high, not all that dry, and to borrow a phrase, pissed off. No more house, why the hell not? Timmy got mad at me. Timmy? Timmy who? The only Timmy in the neighborhood was Timmy McFadden, and he was nothing but a common thug. Why on earth would gorgeous, sophisticated Annette care what a worthless punk like Timmy McFadden thought about house? Because he's my boyfriend, she explained. At which point I experienced a level of horror on the order of what you might feel when the transmission on your Corvette blows out in Gary, Indiana, or when your engine overheats and it's 103 degrees and 40 miles to a gas station. The only terms I can now apply to the heart-sinking despair I felt at that moment are automotive, and this was the ninth circle of car trouble hell. Timmy McFadden is your boyfriend? I asked incredulously. But why? Because he loves me, she said, blithely twirling her ponytail and snapping her double bubble in a carefree manner that seemed brutally at odds with the staggering awfulness of the news she just delivered. When I heard this news about Annette and Timmy's affair, my first instinct was to stomp him into the ground. I quickly came to my senses, however, as I determined that attacking Timmy and staying alive were mutually exclusive. The situation could not have been worse. Timmy McFadden was the baddest bully on the block, and he was making time with my best girl. For the next few months, I had the exquisite agony of watching the person I most desired walking hand-in-hand with the person I most feared. It was a lethal combination that would play out in many a failed relationship from then on. Luckily, however, I soon figured out other less injurious ways to quell my acute inner pain, and they have served me well. In any case, in the interest of all the emotionally and developmentally stunted folks out there like me, I present these three tips for coping with hostility born of heartbreak. I call it, How to Express Your Rage at Your Thwarted Romantic Ambitions When You Are Seven Years Old. Number one, get it on paper. Sure, it was as painful as a paper cut to the eyeball at the time, yet 
I'm actually eternally grateful to Annette and Timmy for tearing my heart out and making me feel as disposable as toilet paper. See, that's because they inspired me to pen my very first journalistic work. Timmy McFadden is a stupid head that stinks so bad. And lo, a scribe was born. While not without its shoddy sentence structure and excessive navel-gazing, Timmy McFadden is a stupid head that stinks so bad might be my most persuasively argued and aggressively punctuated work to date. It's certainly the most heartfelt. Number two, take it out on someone whose ass you can actually kick. Looking back, I suppose it wasn't my cousin Dennis's fault that Timmy McFadden purloined my lady. And I guess you couldn't blame the poor kid for being so frail and pummelable. Nor, for that matter, should he have been made to pay so dearly simply for showing up at my house for a scheduled sleepover just a few short hours after I'd had my heart ripped from my chest. But you see, that's the beauty of being seven. At that age, high-minded ideals such as fairness and mercy have yet to take hold. At seven, you're operating on raw instinct, which compelled me to give my cousin the atomic wedgie to beat all atomic wedgies. I'll admit I didn't feel a whole lot of remorse at the time, but better late than never, right? So now I'd like to offer a public apology. I'm sorry, Dennis. I really am. For what it's worth, you did not endure humiliation along with agonizing pain in your testicles and anus in vain. On the contrary, you suffered nobly so that one emotionally devastated little boy might somehow find his way again. So I guess you could say that by wrenching your fruit of the looms up over your ears, I made you a hero. A savior, even. You can thank me later, Dennis. And finally, number three, eat an entire box of Count Chocula in one sitting. Actually, copious amounts of any breakfast cereal or food item with an alarmingly high ratio of artificial to real ingredients will do. This time-tested road to emotional healing is all about getting so jacked up from mainlining processed sugar that you temporarily develop attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So you become occupied with activities like, say, bouncing off the walls and trying to regulate your breathing, and thus will have little time to ponder matters of the heart. Of course... The shock to your system could also lead to permanent health and or behavioral problems. In which case, I ask that you not tell your parents I recommend you do this in the first place. It'll just be our little secret. That's it for uh, story time and for today's episode. I hope you're all doing well out there and uh, stay safe. Stay out of other people's way. It's going to be a while. You got me. You got this podcast. Follow me at The Imbiber. That's it. That's all I got.